for the first time in my life, God, I, I don't care if going to school, I don't care if I'm scrubbing toilets, right? If it's what you want from me, I'm going to do it, whatever it is. If it's what you have for me, I'm going to find joy and wholeness in that. Hi, it's Sonny Dolphiette from Family Life Afternoons, and we are so honored to hear stories about God working in people's lives and uh, the darkest moments of their lives, and then God pulling them to the sunny side. Our very special guest today is John Lucas. John, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Sonny. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure, brother. Um, we're blessed to work with Trinity, who I understand is your sister, right? That's correct, yeah. And we, we talked about this program, and Trinity said, you have to talk to my brother, John. So, John, first <laughs> off, where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York in the Finger Lake area, and I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. Ohio has kind of been my home for the last 20 years. Okay, we broke up just a little bit, but you said you uh, have been in Ohio for the last 20 years. You started in Bath. Your, your father was a pastor, so obviously you knew the Lord early. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I grew up in a, um, a Christ-centered home, you know, a biblical foundation. So I had brother, I mean, sisters and parents who uh, um, were all Christians. So I had a great example. And many people, when they hear of those, you know, PKs, preacher's kids, that, hey, you know, you, you had a great life. You never had any struggles. And that wasn't yeah. the case for you. When, when did the struggles of life start to grab a hold of you, John? You know, um, Sonny, I think they started, um, they started probably around age 10 or 11. Um, but they really started to manifest in my life probably when I got into high school. So, I mean, you're 10 and there are people that I'm sure will hear this and say, well, how can a kid at 10 years old have problems? And how can a high school student have problems? Come on, John, tell us the truth. Well, um, you know, looking back at 10 years old, I was, uh, Sonny, I was very, um, I think I was very insecure. Um, I, uh, I was homeschooled up until high school, right? So, um, but I just, I remember being 10 and just feeling like there was something in my life that was missing. And um, I just felt like I was off. I, I, I can, I can, I can look back to where I was 10 and, and, and remember struggling with those thoughts and those emotions and not being mature enough or old enough to articulate how I was feeling. I know that many times when we have that hole, because apparently you said you're, you're missing something, we have that hole, we, we fill it with something else, and that's what happened with you, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Was it just needing to self-medicate, wondering what self-medication is? How did, how did drugs find their way into John's life? It, it started with longing for um, acceptance in my peer group, right? So I think I really long for... Um, a deeper emotional connection with other human beings. So I remember distinctly when I was in junior high um, making compromises. The first time I ever tasted alcohol was I was with some of my friends um, who um, weren't really Christians um, but went to my church. But that's when it started. And um, when I had gotten into high school, um, so I would have been 14 years old, socially awkward, right? So everyone already had their circles and their, um, their peer groups. And I was kind of on the outside looking in, I was longing for that connection to be accepted. And, um, you know, so I, I found the, um, kind of the, the loners and the stoners for lack of a better term. And they accepted me into that group. And I started to experiment a little more when I was 14. And that's when I was first introduced to marijuana. 
at that point, though, it's not like the substance itself was something I was driven to want to use. It was just a catalyst for me to try to find connection with my peers. And um, I would say that it wasn't until probably I was about 15, my sophomore year in high school, I was in track. And I remember um, getting an injury to my ankle and I was prescribed pain medication. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in study hall and um, I was just in a lot of pain and I took an extra, um, an extra dose. And at that point, I unintentionally got high off my medication. And Sonny, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh my goodness, this feels normal. And it's like all my social anxiety dissipated. I felt like I could focus. Normally I wasn't very good at focusing on school. And I just remember thinking that like, wow, this thing that's been missing, I just found it. And um, that's kind of where it all started. It was right around age 15 to where for the first time I tried a substance and a drug and it made me feel, I guess, whole, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. And one point that you you brought up that I'm sure may shock some moms and dads listening that, wait, going back to those friends that you went to church with or the ones who turned you on to cigarettes and alcohol, but they were Christians, weren't they? Weren't they, John? Tell me they were Christians. Yeah, it was... Um, you know, they were, they were, you know, I, I, their parents were probably believers, but we were cultural Christians, right? We went to church because our parents went to church. And for us, it was, we thought, you know, um, just a couple of boys in middle school, we wanted an adventure. We wanted to test, test things out. So I guess alcohol and cigarettes were kind of um, our outlet. Yeah. And then uh, as you just shared that you felt normal for the first time after pretty much taking too much of whatever that pain pill mm-hmm. was. And then unfortunately it continued to grow. Yes. So at that point, it was on my radar. And um, at that at that point, Sunday, I was still longing for social connection. It's not like I, I became an addict right away. But when it would get brought up in conversation with some of my peers in high school, I would make an effort to find it out, right, to, to, to purchase some. Um, fast forward to my senior year of high school. At this point, I'm using drugs more and more heavily. I'm going to church. I'm going to youth group. Um, at this at this point, I have a relationship with um, a lady in the youth group, and I'm living two lives, right? So I, I've got the like you had mentioned the PK um, mask on. My father's a pastor, so I have to act accordingly. But in school, I was an entirely different person. So there was this weird dichotomy that was happening. But my senior year, ironically enough, um, Trinity was kind of the catalyst for this. Uh, my sister was the catalyst for um, me getting caught. Um, I had. Um, I had a pocket full of um, Oxycontin, which is a, it's a big no-no. Um, it's one of the, uh, I think it was a Schedule One drug that I had stolen from a, a friend's bathroom cabinet. It was, it was stored in his bathroom, and I just saw it there, and I, I remember just um, helping myself. And um, if that's any indication that I was pretty much um, morally bankrupt at that point. And um, I'm, I'm sitting down with Trinity at the lunch table and um, she was having a rough day and I can't remember why. And she forgot her lunch money. And um, I said, hey, I'm going to go buy you some chicken nuggets. All right. I'll be right back. And, um, you know, big brother going back through the line. And um, when I went to pay for my food the second time, um, some of the pills fell out of my pocket mm-hmm. and uh, the lunch lady saw it and I was completely oblivious to it. And um, she gave it to the, uh, the principal. They caught it on camera. And they pulled me into the office. That was pretty much the start of it. And I would go on to become a felon before I would even graduate high school. 
And this is a, a pastor's son at a relatively big church in a small community, right? So for me, it was just, you can imagine the uh, the waves of shame I was experiencing at that point were pretty intense. And I was, I was pretty lost at that point as a young man. Yeah, so you, you have this, the world crashing in on you. Um, were there people there trying to keep you afloat or was everyone pointing the finger saying, hey, look at him, look at him? You know, I, I'm very fortunate to at a church that I had grown up in. They did surround me um, to a degree. Uh, I think it was more um, self-inflicted, the shame, right? And it's because I had no idea who I was, Sonny. I was struggling with my identity so much. You know, I grew up experiencing one thing, but really my heart was with the world and what my peers were doing and what I thought, you know, was um, acceptable in their eyes. So I, I did have people come around me and it, it worked for a while. And I was I was placed on probation at that point. But uh, eventually the uh, it came back. The beast re, um, showed its head again. And um, by the time I graduated high school, I was using drugs more and more heavily. I, I think I blew through all my graduation money probably within a month. And um, at this point, I was um, still hiding it from my family for the most part. But um, it had become... I really want to get high today. I, I want to find some pills. And um, that was pretty much chapter one of an eight year downward spiral that pretty much ravaged everything in my life. You you think of you in a small town, a preacher's kid, grew up knowing the Lord and you could fall into that trap uh, because so many times people hear these stories of people dealing with addiction issues and they think it's only big city people. And, you know, it's those people who they, their lives were tough anyway, but you were blessed. You, you had a life that was blessed. Um, and it's, of course, obviously still blessed. But sometimes we're, we're blind to that. And what, what if someone's listening now and they're wondering if they should try uh, to go your route? because you felt better and if things worked out for you, it seemed, um, what do you say to them who, who are thinking of taking that first hit that they think that might be the answer? Uh, yeah, definitely not the answer. All you have to do is look at the, uh, the headlines. Overdoses are up, I think, 73% this year um, all over the country. Uh, it destroys lives. It's just not worth it. Um, and, um, yeah. And you, and you know, you know what, Sonny, it's hard because I was told that, right. I was told that, that exact same thing when I was that age and yet it, it wasn't a strong enough deterrent for me. Um, so I, I, I think what matters most, um, at that age connection, right. That was what I was missing in my life was connection. And I tried to find that in the wrong places. Um, now there, there's going to be some people who are kind of born into a really tough situation to where it's like, from a young age, they're surrounded by the drugs, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but for somebody like me who grew up in a home where I had two parents who loved the Lord and supported me, um, I would just say, you know, keep your identity rooted in what you know to be true. Amen. John Luke is our special guest on the sunny side. And John, we're going through that walk with you. We're what, eight, nine years in where you're struggling off and on with drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, where, what was the lowest point? When did you know you needed help? Well, um, I... At that point, I had changed my location multiple, multiple times, Sonny, thinking if I changed my location, fresh starts would be enough. It wasn't. I thought, okay, maybe accountability, some counseling would be enough. And it wasn't. Maybe if I just white knuckled my addiction and stayed sober. And Sonny, what I didn't realize back then was 
that there's a big difference between being clean and being sober and then being free. Mm. And um, I, I, I didn't know the difference, right? So for me, it was like, I just have to change my behaviors. And what I didn't realize is it, 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 come, it needs to be an internal change. And ultimately, we know who helps make that change in your heart. But in, in terms of the lowest point, there was probably a couple. Um, I had done treatment for six months and had relapsed. Um, and uh, at that point, I was like, man, I, I tried resurrendering my life to God. I tried repenting. I thought I was doing good. Man, I even gave my testimony in front of 400 people. And here I am back in this filth, right? And, um, you know, and back then it was like, well, I, I love the story of the prodigal son, but what would happen if the prodigal son, after a feast was thrown for him in his honor of returning, he returned back to, you know, th that lifestyle, that partying in the, in the pagan countries. And, you know, I was so lost. It's like, God's just not working for me. And then I, I you know, I tried um, some detox center. I did some intensive outpatient. And um, when the threat of, um, overdosing and dying a strong enough deterrent to stop you from using drugs, you start to get pretty hopeless, right? So I, I do remember distinctly sleeping on the floor of a drug house and um, waking up and just I seeing syringes laying about in the room. I remember going downstairs, scattered throughout the room and just thinking, man, how did I get to this place? Probably the absolute lowest for me was, um, 2016. Um, it was in the winter, I want to say December where I, I was pretty much at the end of my rope, Sonny. I wanted to essentially just give up and die. I, I felt like I was hopeless. Um, I just didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I got in the car and I started driving towards my drug dealer and it was, a, it was about a 45 minute drive. And I remember thinking, Sonny, like, man, I'm going to get more than normal. And if I die, I die. And right before I left, Sonny, I, I remember I was at my parents' house. I had no money, right? And they had suspicions that I was using again. And I remember looking my father in my eye. And, um, you know, so many times I had lied to him, right, and uh, manipulated him for my own personal desires. And I remember making up some kind of excuse for money. And I just saw so much pain and hurt. And honestly, that look just kind of jarred me. And um, I, I got in my car and I started driving. There's just this warring going on inside of me to where I just, I feel like I'm drowning yeah. at this point. And I, I'm almost suffocating in a way. And um, instantly something comes over me and I pull over my car and I just begin to weep. And then it's like, man, I just, God, I want to surrender, but I'm scared. Like, I don't know what to do. But then I, I shook it off because, hey, I'm fit physically sick. I'm starting to go through withdrawals. At this point, I, I want to go get this, these drugs. So I get back on the road and I'm driving again. I pull my car and I begin to weep again. And it's like, um, that, that face my father looked pretty much punctured a hole in my armor. It was like, I had this shroud over my, my face, this shroud over my being where I was just, you know, um, impervious to any kind of empathy, right? And I, I was just so disconnected from myself and others, but um, I, I just, I was really struggling with that look. And then I, I finally just picked up my phone. I called my dad and obviously at this point, it's not like my dad is surprised. He knows I've been struggling with drugs on and off for years. And uh, I, I picked up the phone and I said, dad, um, I need help. And what I expected 
did was for him to, you know, lash out at me and, you know, son, like how many times have we been down this road? I knew it, you know, you just, you, you're so selfish. You can't give up your drugs, you know, but that's not how he responded. He simply said, son, come home right now in a very loving way. And, um, that was the start of my recovery was that particular day. And, um, I drove, drove to actually his church. I met him there with some, um, loved ones and some mentors and they all surrounded me. And at this, at, that was at the point where I was like, I am so broken beyond repair and maybe I don't even want to be fixed, but I just feel like I'm regardless, I I'm unfixable right now. Mm. And that was kind of my first step of faith to where I was reduced to nothingness. And I just said, God, I really need your help right now. And uh, that was the start of my recovery journey. It took you seeing God in your dad at that point. Just he, he probably knew or maybe if he didn't know, <laughs> the spirit of God within him knew. And you saw that. And OK, you're on this road to recovery. Where did that start? At that point, um, I, I realized I've got to go back in recovery, like long-term residential. Accountability is not going to work. Um, I was um, just so lost that I, I, yeah, I couldn't even trust myself. Um, couldn't even trust my own motives at this point. But um, I would spend the next week detoxing on my parents' couch, which was, um, you know, for those who don't understand, I'll just try to paint a picture. Um, it, Physically speaking, um, it's it's the worst flu you've ever had. Um, first, you get the restless leg syndrome. Then you get the insomnia that lasts um, for days, if not weeks. It starts to feel like the bones are splitting inside of your skin. And at this point, you got to understand that when you use drugs, you're flushing the body's natural um, feel-good chemicals, right? So when you come off drugs after you've been using them for a while, all those dopamine centers are they're drained. There's nothing there. So you experience tremendous amounts of anxiety and depression and um, your body literally can't make you feel better because there's no chemicals left in your brain. And so I just, I would spend the next seven days in pain. Um, and then in my head was this endless reel of everything I had done, you know, all the people I had hurt, the, this past decade of selfish, I remember crying out to God and just like feeling like I heard silence. But I got through the week. I somehow I survived. My uh, my family or my, my father took me to um, a ministry in Columbus, Ohio, a Christ-centered ministry that was free to enter, and that's where my journey really began. That I, I really owe my life to that ministry. It, it really put me on the right track and saved my life. Amen. Well, what did you find different there? As you get to the refuge ministries in Columbus, Ohio. So interesting enough, you know, most of the time, unfortunately, in the uh, um, drug treatment world, most men struggling with um, drugs are treated as clients, right? Patients. And honestly, like there's money to be made there, unfortunately. Like there's a lot of people out there, a lot of um, businesses that make money off sick men who are struggling with addiction. But um, at this point, I'm lonely, depressed, scared. And I'm sitting um, in this room with a bunch of other guys, and we're addressed by the staff that's working there, residential coordinators. They, uh, they pretty much say, hey, guys, this is going to sound weird, but we, we love you. 
And I remember thinking, I don't even know who you are. And you're telling me you love me. It's just kind of, it's kind of odd, kind of weird. Mm. And uh, it said, you know, we've been where you're at. We have struggled through addiction and we're going to walk um, hand in hand with you through this process. And we're going to be your biggest asset. And um, we have no hidden agenda, no secret motive, except for you to find freedom. That's it. And those words kind of resonated with me. And then they, um, they went and they grabbed all the current residents who had been staying there, right? And um, they all walked in and they walked up to us. They hugged all of us. They grabbed our luggage. And I remember thinking, oh, man, who are these strangers, these dudes <laughs> that are hugging me? It's kind of weird, right? And they're grabbing our luggage and showing us where we're staying. And instantly I'm like, okay, this place, <laughs> this place is going to be different. So this culture was a culture of unconditional love and acceptance that was deeply rooted in biblical truth and the way that we see intentional Christian community modeled in the New Testament. It began to change me. You know, every day was a new day to become everything that God had created you to be, right? So instead of sitting there um, in, this, in a treatment facility where it's like, hi, I'm John, I'm a drug addict, I'm always gonna be a drug addict. They're reinforcing our identity in Christ. All this truth really started to marinate within my soul. And I, I found for the first time in my life, my, my authentic identity. Like I said, I knew all these terms and this, you know, lack for a better term, uh, Christianese growing up, but I was experiencing it now firsthand. My faith had now shifted from intellectual head knowledge to heart knowledge. Some of the most fond times in my entire life I experienced in that year of, of ministry. I, until this day, like I still text and talk to all those guys that I, I, I came through that ministry with. Upon finishing that, that ministry, you know, Sonny, my whole life had always been centered on myself. Mm. And I said, you know what? For the first time in my life, God, I, I don't care if going to school, I don't care if I'm scrubbing toilets, right? If it's what you want from me, I'm going to do it, whatever it is. If it's what you have for me, I'm going to find joy and wholeness in that. And uh, so I gave back and I, I joined the staff when I completed and I became a residential in the facility with the men. And then I got to walk along beside them and guide them in their recovery process. And uh, I did that for about two years. And um, it was a really fulfilling time. And in a, in a way, it kind of reinforced to a greater degree my foundation in recovery because you know, um, now I'm giving back what was given to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and the story doesn't end there. It doesn't. So I, I took over our intake process at, at the refuge and um, I was nearing the end of my commitment the founder of the refuge introduced me to a man named Dan Gregory. And I didn't really know much about Dan, Dan Gregory, except um, he wanted to replicate what the refuge was doing and take it to Northeast Ohio. So he was from Northeast Ohio in the Cleveland area, Akron area. And he saw there was a great lack for um, Christ-centered, faith-based residential treatment. There just was nothing up in the area. And he saw how successful the refuge was and he saw the statistics of men that graduate and how they stay in recovery. He said, we, we want that in Northeast Ohio. Anyways, he, uh, I, I met Dan and he was sharing his vision with me. And Sonny, I don't really, it was just in that moment, I kind of sensed in a weird way, like, okay, I have a feeling somehow me and Dan are gonna be connected down the road. <laughs> so um, 
about a year after that, after I've um, left the refuge, and at this point I'm working, I'm in sales, and um, I, I'm, I'm building up this a life that I've never built up before because I was always in drug addiction, and I, I went to speak at a fundraiser for Dan. I, I thought what Dan was wanting to do was very audacious, right? So he wanted to take this ministry, this nonprofit, which was going to cost million, millions of dollars and, you know, just in the next three years, build it, right? And, and fundraise. And it's really hard to raise that kind of money when all you have is the example of another ministry, right? So I, and, um, I give my testimony and um, I'm talking to Dan afterwards. And, and uh, me and Dan just began to, to build this relationship. And uh, in many ways, he became kind of a, a mentor and a very close friend of mine. It wasn't too much longer after that. He said, uh, um, John, this is real. What's happening up here in Northeast Ohio? We're, we're going to raise enough money to build this thing. And he said, I, I want you to run it. I want you to be my director and oversee the programming. You know, I thought that was a, um, I just, I was, I was just floored. I was like, wow, God, like you have, um, how you have brought me to this point. Like I, 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 I wish I could have, you know, it's funny. God doesn't reveal too much to us in the beginning because we probably would just mess everything up. Right. <laughs> but it was just crazy for me to think like, man, just three years ago, like I wanted to end my life because mm. I was so, I was in such a broken state mm. and now God's wanting to use me to help lead men. A half ago, I started consulting, doing some consultation for them and just kind of helping them as they built out their, their, their programming. So their vision was they wanted to have one giant facility that was out of the city, up on a hill, very peaceful. The property was probably, uh, I think it's about 20 acres. Um, it was going to, and it had old buildings on it to remove all the buildings and purchase the land. It was going to cost a million dollars. And uh, that's just a lot of money, right? So essentially Dan went to the mayor and he said, Hey, this is my vision for, um, you know, this, this faith-based treatment center. And, um, I, I want, you know, I want to build it up on this hill. The mayor was like, yes, that's great. We'd love to have you up there. Our community needs it. You know, it could be yours for $900,000. And Dan said, um, how about for free? And he was kind of laughed at, right? Mm. Well, long story short, we bought the land for $10, which was a move <laughs> of God. And then on top of that, they paid to have all of the buildings that were on the land demolished and hauled out of here. That's just the start of it. So then we've got this 20,000 square foot facility with 75 beds. And the whole building was designed with the thought of discipleship in mind. So we didn't want to build a treatment, a building that felt like a treatment center where the guys felt like they were in a hospital, that they were clients. We wanted it to feel like a home. Mm -hmm. So everything was designed with discipleship in mind to the layout of the building, to the paint on the walls, um, to the aesthetics, um, to the size of the windows. Everything just feels very homey here. And all the windows are gigantic. They're like 16, 20 foot tall. And you can just see out into the woods and the wilderness and they're sitting up on this hill. So over the last month, staring out these windows, we just see the snow coming down. It's, it's quite beautiful. Um, but anyways, this, this building was going to cost um, roughly $4 million. We really kind of put the pedal down on the fundraising about a year and a half ago. We opened our doors just a month ago. We are completely debt free which is just so incredible to think that um, God made a way for that to happen. We <laughs> took in our first residence about a month and a half ago, about a month ago. It's just been incredible to see what God's doing in the lives of these men. And it's just, like I said, it's just crazy to think that four years ago, I was in the valley at the, 
end of my life, depressed, broken, feeling like I was unfixable. And it just takes me back to Romans 8, 28. Mm. We, uh, you know, essentially we, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, right? I can just see how God took all this hurt and this pain and this brokenness in my life and he's turned it around now to use for his glory and his purpose. Amen. And of course, so many times God loves us when we don't even love ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. So true. So, brother, what what is stopping you from wanting that next hit, that next high? What? How has God replaced that? What I thought I was looking for in drugs I have found in Jesus. That's it. You know, I once you've gone to the broken cisterns enough times and then you've experienced the living water and all of its glory, you don't want that anymore. You've realized, no, like, why would I want to go back to that? So, Sonny, I'll be honest. I don't think about it. I don't dream about it. It never crosses my mind. I'm not tempted because I am so completely satisfied in the person of Jesus. And that's enough for me. And everything I thought that I was going to get from these broken cisterns and um, these drugs that gave this false sense of wholeness, I am finding completely in the person of Jesus. Amen. I say it to people all the time. There is no better rehab than Jesus. That's right. <laughs> How can we get more information <laughs> on Restore Addiction Recovery? Um, check out our website. Everything you need to know is on our website. Um, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram. And um, we're constantly posting about the journey of the men. Um, you'll see pictures of our facility. You can even see the breakdown of what our, our, our programming looks like in our ministry. Amen. And John, before you go, um, for those parents, for those friends that have family members or friends that are struggling with drugs and they want to turn their back on them. You know, they you see it all the time. Unfortunately, that's why the suicide rates are so high for those who are struggling mm-hmm. with addiction. Um, can you talk to them? Talk to those who are ready to turn their backs on their loved ones who are struggling with addiction. Sonny, this is such a hard, tough conversation because every situation is uniquely different. I will say this. There's a fine line. There's two extremes, right? A lot of times parents want to coddle their children and they just want to give them the world and they keep enabling them. And in a way, it keeps them in their addiction longer. But then the other extreme is the parents that are just or the loved ones. You know what? I've had enough of you. I just I can't. I'm turning my back on you completely. Come back to me when you've changed. Right. There has to be a middle ground. And I think of the prodigal son, right? The father did not chase after the son. But guess what? When the son returned, the father was waiting with arms wide open and he ran out to greet the son. So I think that first off, it begins with prayer. And obviously, if you've got a loved one that's that's hurting, I know you've probably been praying for them. But it's also just having the, the discernment and knowing, okay, if they want change and they want help, I'm going to be the greatest resource. I'm going to get them where they're going. But at the same time, I can't continue to enable you to live in your sin and to to essentially kill yourself. That's always a really tricky question. Mm, I understand. John Lucas, may the Lord continue to use you in such a mighty way. Uh, Thank you, Father, for bringing this brother out of the darkness and into the sunny side. Yes. Amen. Thanks, Sonny. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunny Side. Family Life is listener supported. And your financial gifts make podcasts like Therese Talk, If That Makes Sense, 10 Minutes With, and The Sunny Side, just to name a few, possible. Find out how you can partner with Family Life on our website at familylife.org. 